Hi, everyone. We're so excited to be back with another season of 9 to 5-ish. We're bringing you more conversations with female leaders. And this time, we're talking with our guests about how they've reclaimed their power and regained control at work. We hope you enjoyed this season of 9 to 5-ish, and we want to hear from you. Email us at audio at theskim.com or DM us at Carly and Danielle on Instagram with your thoughts and feedback on the show. We really want to hear from you. All right, let's get into the episode. I don't know who in the hell lied to us and told us that somehow we're supposed to be more humble, put our head down, care about the company more than ourselves. For what? Like, this is this is my life. This is my career. This is my growth. And if there's any time where I feel like, oh, this is not actually serving me, that's when it's time to go. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than 9 to 5. All right, let's get into it. Hey everyone, it's Danielle. Today, our guest is Bose St. John. I am a big fangirl. I'm really excited. I love following Bose's career and her Instagram and excited to speak with her today. Bose is one of the most influential marketing executives. She's worked for companies including Pepsi, Apple Music, Endeavor, and Uber. Most recently, she was the chief marketing officer at the streaming giant Netflix. Bose has also been inducted into the American Marketing Hall of Fame and has been on the cover of Adweek. Now she can add author to her resume. Her memoir, The Urgent Life, My Story of Love, Loss, and Survival is in stores now. Bose, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Hey, 9 to 5-ish. It's the ish part that I really want to talk about. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So we're going to get into the lightning round. So quick questions, quick answers. Okay, okay, okay. What was the first job you got paid for? I was an AT&T operator, like literally answering the phones in Colorado Springs, Colorado. What was the weirdest call you got? As an AT&T, well, it was mostly people trying to connect to family. And okay. when they couldn't connect, they would be mad at me. <laughs> and I was like, yo, I don't know, there's something wrong with their phone. I'm not the one who created the phone lines. You know what I'm saying? Lots of angry people out there. You worked at Netflix. What was your mm-hmm. favorite show that came out during your time there? Ooh. Okay. Well, it was new to me, Valhalla. Yeah. I know. It's like probably surprising, but yeah, the Viking. Okay. I was going to say, like, is that the one that I think it is? Yeah, it is. It is. It is the one you think it is. Okay. I know. What was your favorite ad from the Super Bowl this year? Ooh. Look, I don't have a favorite ad because you know what? Rihanna crushed the. She crushed. So, you know, I think that's a big marketing moment for Fenty. So let's just say that it was it was unexpected. What do you think of that? Like stop for the the Fenty powder halfway down. Brilliant. A brilliant marketing move. Like, Mm -hmm. so forget the 30 second commercials. That moment, that show integration that she took upon herself. (laughs) Marketing genius right there. Beautiful. Well done. Well done. What's something we can't Google about you? Between the book and your Instagram, there's a lot out there, but what's something people would be surprised to know? 
Mm. They'd be surprised to know that I still wear my college sweats, that they have holes in them. And then my mom has tried to throw them away a few times. I don't care. I'm keeping them. How many hours of sleep do you need? I need eight hours of sleep and I get them. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Do you get it all the time? I would say 95% of the time. Yeah. Even when you're like, have had jobs where you've traveled? Yes. How? First of all, I think I'm unnaturally gifted that I can sleep anywhere. Okay. Like if you said right now, you said to me, look, we're going to take a five minute nap. I'll be out like a light. Like I have no problem falling asleep. So I know that lots of people have problems falling asleep. I don't have, I don't have that problem. And so I'm able to fall asleep anywhere and I really like to sleep. So I get my eight hours always. How did you find your first full-time job? I found my very first full-time job while on campus at Wesleyan University where I graduated. My sister was a year behind me and I really wanted to stay on campus to be with her. And also I was trying to avoid going to medical school. So I took a job on campus <laughs> in the admissions office. Were they advertising <laughs> on campus? Oh yeah. Like every, every, yes. And they, yeah, we had to travel to go to different schools and tell people why they should come to Wesleyan. So I was good at that part. But yeah, I wanted to stay because I liked my sister and I wanted to party with her. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? When I left Netflix. What's your best advice for building trust with your consumers, like actual trust? Mm. To be honest, even in the bad stuff, you know, because there's no perfect product. So you got to be honest about the stuff that's not great. What is your favorite part of writing a memoir? Mm. Oh, you know, it's like the good stuff and the bad stuff about memories Sometimes you're able to pull up things that were really, really fun at the time, or really funny, or really loving. That was great about writing my memoir, being able to explain those moments. What's the toughest part? Same thing. Having to relive the moments that were just devastating. That was tough. Yeah. Getting into the conversation, there's a ton in the book that I, I want to get to. And I want to start with the title. What does it mean to you to live urgently? Well, living urgently, I think sometimes it can be confused for like living recklessly or spontaneously or like without care, but that's not it at all. You know, urgency is like a combination of things. It's like the combination of time, of intention, of selfishness. Ooh, you know, it's like when people say like, ooh, be humble, you know, care for everybody. No, man, you got to be selfish about your life. Because it's yours, right? And so the title was really important to me because I wanted to be reminded of my own purpose in my life and how all of these traumas and losses and the love have made me who I am, have made me urgent about my life. You know, it's like it's not just looking back at my life, but also looking forward into the future. And if there's anything, it's like, how can I? express that in a way that makes other people want to live an urgent life. First of all, I should say, I find it very brave that you chose at this moment in your life to look backwards. You talk about losing your husband, Peter, and after his death, about a year after, you started a role, new role at Apple. Mm -hmm. What was it like going back to work after such a tremendous loss and not even going back to work, starting at a, a new job 
And it's not like it was like a small job. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Gosh, there's so many ways to answer that question. Because on one hand, I have never been apologetic about being ambitious. I'm not the person who gets into something and thinks, oh, you know what? I'm fine in the middle. No, I want to I want to be the best. I want to do the best. I want to contribute. Like I want to be known. I've never been like shy about saying that. And so returning to work it felt necessary because I need to refine my place, you know, recenter after being knocked off like the center of my life so dramatically with the death of my husband. Like my whole world has shifted. All of a sudden I went from being, you know, a wife and a mother and an executive and like successful executive to being someone people looked at with pity, a widow, a single mom, someone who was battling grief and mental health challenges. All of a sudden it was like, I wasn't the person that I was supposed to be anymore. And so returning to work was somewhat of reclaiming back for myself who I am you know, or who I was at the time, trying to find my quote unquote normalcy again, even though now I know it's like, you can never return to the person you were before whatever dramatic incident happens to you. Right. But I was trying to find my way again. And it was also really beautiful to return as a different person, a more empathetic person, And as someone who was more open to talking about the things that were happening to me, you know, before then, oh girl, anything, the sky couldn't have been falling. I'd be like, y'all see the, the blueberries that were in the kitchen? (laughs) (laughs) Anything could have happened. And I would have been like, no, I don't see it. I don't know what you're talking about. But the very first day that I went to, to Beats Music, Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre recruited me. And I told everyone that I was a new widow that my husband had been dead for three months and I didn't know how I was going to make it through. My daughter was in New York. I'd have to move her to LA and I needed their help. That was it. I want to unpack that for a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. I think as a society and at at work, we've made a lot of strides on bringing more of ourselves to how we show up. But I still feel like, especially in a workplace, no one knows what to say when someone's grieving. Mm. Mm -hmm. No one knows what to say. No one knows what to say. And it's even hard to say people say the wrong thing because they usually just don't say anything. I lost my mom really unexpectedly a few years ago. And when I came back to work, I had zero confidence. Mm. So I hear your story and I am just struck by the confidence. And maybe it's not confidence. Maybe that's, you know, what I'm projecting, but Mm-hmm. To be able to say that in front of people that you didn't really know. Yes. Ooh. Talk to me Ooh. about that. I mean, I don't even, you're right. I don't even know how to really begin articulating. Only that I was just so, I was so, oh man, I was so sad. You know, I don't know what else to call it. I was just so sad. Also incredulous. <laughs> You know, just like, what? You're going to make me uh, cry now. <laughs> no, seriously. I was just like, the f- how did this happen? This is not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to happen now. Not supposed to happen like this. Like, I was looking at my four-year-old and thinking, she lost. Like, 
What happens on her wedding day? What happens when she has her kids? She didn't get the opportunity to share that with her dad. I was so pissed. And like I was looking at God like, what the hell are you doing? Why take this one? I just was in a place of unbelievable. Like, I just, I just couldn't believe it. And there was no way for me to even hold a conversation that didn't involve my grief. I didn't know how to leave it someplace. You know, maybe, maybe if I had that skill, maybe I would have never said anything. I just didn't have it. I just didn't know how to do it. My whole career, I had been told to like, leave your personal problems at the door. Only talk about work when you're at work. Don't let these people see you, you know, because they might think you're weak. They could use it to their advantage or hurt you in the process. But I think the honest truth of it was that I wasn't thinking strategy. I wasn't thinking politics. I was just so sad. And I wanted the people that I worked with to understand that who they were looking at wasn't the same person from a year ago, that they had read so much about me because coming into that job, it was really high profile. When I walked into that conference room, like it was standing room only. People were bursting through the doors. Like everybody had come to see who the new head of marketing was, who was going to lead us into the future. And I walked in and I was just like, I am not what you expect. I promise you. It was really, really amazing to get the response that I got from people. You know, they were so empathetic. They were giving, there were offers from people who said, you know, I have a nanny, so if you'd like to share while you figure things out, it's okay. It was just like amazing to me. It's like humanity can surprise you that way. Not everybody is terrible. (laughs) So I, it was such a gift to be able to know that people really can show up without the judgment that I think we so expect from people. The other thing that I find really interesting is talk to me a little bit about how it went with Jimmy, Ivan, and Dr. Dre knowing that you were being recruited, as you said, while this was going on. I was actually, let me think about this, actually. I don't think I had yet gone to into bereavement leave. I don't think my husband was dead yet when they started looking at me. Now, I didn't know that. They were looking at my career and looking at the things I was doing. At the time, because I was at PepsiCo and I had been on the team to negotiate the deal with the Super Bowl halftime show with the NFL, I put Beyonce on that stage. And the next one up was going to be Bruno Mars. The next one after that, gosh, let me think, was it Katy Perry? And then I think Lady Gaga, or it might be the other way around. In any case, it was a stack, you know, and they knew that I was the one working on it. And it was in the middle of all that. Can you imagine? All of my whole personal world was falling apart too. And so I wasn't communicating with anyone about all the drama and trauma that was happening. So I don't think they knew. Now, it wasn't until I actually came to LA after my husband had passed away. And this was probably, I would say, six weeks or two months after he had died when I finally met Jimmy and Dre in person and Trent Reznor too, by the way. And I remember sitting in Jimmy's living room. And again, I was just so sad, you know? And he, was asking me questions about the work and asking questions about life, basically, because he's actually really masterful that way. He cares more deeply than just about the work. And I just, I just told him. It was the first time I told a boss or a potential boss. Can you imagine somebody who's interviewing you and you're just like, so here's the thing. <laughs> I'm in deep grief. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but I think also 
maybe the truth in that too is that like, I didn't have any Fs to give. I had nothing left in the tank. The other part of, you know, a huge part of your story about love and also loss is you write about losing your first child after going into induced labor. And, you know, again, I go back to the same thing, right? Like as a workplace, as a society, we've gotten much better about talking about what women go through trying to have families and yeah. sometimes the the loss and the grief that comes along with that. And still, no one knows what to say. Yeah. Looking at both of these losses, what are things that as a leader you hope that you've brought with you professionally, like modeling to your team from these? And then also as a person, what do you think we need to see more of in in how we support people? Well, maybe I'll start backwards, which is that I think I'm a better leader because of what I've been through. Like I show up fully as myself. I know people like like to throw out the whole thing, like I'm unapologetic and bring your full self to work and all that. But the truth of the matter is that do you actually, do you put yourself in the work? I do. I mean, for sure I do. Like anybody who's ever worked with me will tell you that. I show up to work as a widow. I show up to work as a single mom. I show up to work as someone who has lost a loved one to suicide. I show up with all that. Because I think it makes me more connected to humanity. It doesn't make me weaker. I think it makes me stronger. And not stronger as in like that weird nonsense that people say like, you know, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. First of all, I'm like, no, these things can sometimes kill you for sure. They can be the death of your spirit. Maybe not in body, but of your spirit. You know, and so I don't believe all those cliche lines but I do think that I am a better person because I'm able to tap into my traumas and tap into my losses to help me see people better and to understand people better. So yes, when I have someone on my team who shows up and they show up a little bit differently than they were the day before, I am more interested in what is happening with them. And sometimes, look, people don't want to share and that's okay. But I want to be able to create a safe enough space that you feel like, look, I can show up halfway sometimes and it'll be okay, you know? Or that you can look at a piece of work or a piece of creative because I'm a marketer, right? The whole job is narratives to the world. And so if you're looking at something or just like, ah, I think that's gonna miss because I've had this experience. And if somebody is looking at this work this way, they're gonna feel this way. Like that is good. You know, we're not talking to the lowest common denominator. And so I think putting humanity back into the workspace and therefore into the work is actually the right thing. It's actually what wins. And I have proof. People ask like, oh, well, how are you, you know, this celebrated executive? And I'm like, because I'm human. Not because I'm perfect. I'm flawed. That's why it's great. I want to be able to encourage more vulnerability in our workspaces, because if you show up that way as a leader, so will your team. So let's talk about some of the workspaces you've been in. Mm -hmm. So you have worked for, I mean, huge brands. In the past yeah. nine years, you've worked at four different places. How do you mm -hmm. decide what makes you interested in something? And then mm -hmm. when do you know that it's time for the next thing? Well, here's the secret. Okay. Just lean in over here and hear the secret. <laughs> it's all <laughs> about me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So therefore, it should be all about you. I don't know 
who in the hell lied to us and told us that somehow we're supposed to be more humble, put our head down, care about the company more than ourselves? For what? Like, this is my life. This is my career. This is my growth. And if there's any time where I feel like, oh, this is not actually serving me, that's when it's time to go. Not because I owe somebody some obligation. They're lucky I'm there. They're welcome for my presence. <laughs> so I'm like, look, I'm, I'm bringing something valuable. And as soon as that value is no longer appreciated, I'm out of here. It's as simple as that for me. And I think if more of us could actually believe that our contribution to a place is magic, it makes a difference, it is special, then you wouldn't treat yourself as if like your presence is inconsequential or as if when somebody tells you, oh, you know what, you need another six months to hone the skill that you already know you have, that you'll believe them over yourself. You know, I just have some super self-confidence about what I bring to a space. And I know for sure that we all have it. We just aren't willing to acknowledge it. But I do think that there's like there's self-confidence and then there is there's self-confidence that you're going to be able to figure it out, which I think is sometimes different than self-confidence that you can do it already. But here I feel like there's let, let me figure out the way to say this, because that is something unique to women. As a leader, I will tell you, I've experienced it between my, you know, the women on my team versus the men on my team. And I'll explain it this way, right? Which is like, take a glass, glass half full example. We're all used to that one. Okay. So when you come into a job, your glass should be half full. You should be using that experience to fill it. Instead, most of the time what happens is women come into a job and they are coming in with their glass already full. They have all the experiences. And I'm like, okay, now I'm ready to do this job. But then you can't add more to your glass. Every time you try to add more to the glass, it's going to spill over. And all of the talents and all of the knowledge and all that is going to be spilling over and being wasted. So instead, yes, come and grow. Fill your glass. And so that's what I'm saying, that by the time I am ready to go, it is because my glass is already full. And it's time for me to get the next experience. And so if I can get it at the company, if you're willing to give me a bigger glass so I can fill it some more, fantastic, I'll stay. But most of the time, that's not what happens to me. Most of the time, people say, oh, good, good, yes, keep your glass. By the way, you need to do some more of the things you're doing. No, I'm wasting my time then. So I need to go somewhere else. Like, where did this come from? We're on Zoom recording and I'm like, could I have this in like my mirror every single day? Yes, yes. You want to FaceTime me every day? I'll give you my number. Yeah. I'll, I'll call you every day. I'd be like, Danielle, look, look here, Danielle. <laughs> Actually, let, let's do this, okay? For everybody okay. who's listening, we need to record this so you can play this for yourself every day, yes. okay? So here we go, okay? Look in the mirror. Know that you are a molecule, a very important molecule. You're going to enter the world, which is made up of matter. This is science. When a molecule enters the matter, it changes the matter. When it leaves the matter, it changes the matter. So you are going to walk into the world knowing that you're going to change it. Your very presence, the fact that you breathe in that space, changes it. So go. 
Okay, so like you just made this shit up right here. So like, where does this come from? Because this isn't the type of confidence that you're like, well, I took this and I learned this. This is like, I'm assuming this is who you always were. Yes, this is who I've been and also who I've become. A lot of my confidence, I mean, this this is the truth of it. A lot of my confidence has come from the traumas I faced, actually. Look, I know I'm invincible, for sure. So much has happened to me. So much whack shit has happened. And I'm still here looking at you. Still here laughing. I'm still here working. I'm still here succeeding. Like, come on. I mean, look, it's not as if I am unafraid of the world. I don't like for my 13-year-old daughter to be outside without me. Because <laughs> I'm just like, hey, look, I don't know what's coming. Like, I got to protect you from everything, right? It's not that I'm fearless. But I just know that come what may, I'm going to survive. I'm going to survive because I have already. So what makes me think I can't? You know, that's where my confidence comes from. I read that you hate the phrase, pay your dues. Oh, Ugh. I get why you hate the phrase, but like, what is it? What's behind it? I hate it because I'm like, who do I owe? Seriously, who do I owe? I'm sorry, who thinks that they, they own me? Nobody owns me. I made me. So if anybody paying, I'm paying myself. <laughs> I just think it's ridiculous. I'm like, first of all, what made that person so arrogant that they think I need to pay them something? Dues for what? Like the only do I'm doing is doing what's right for me. <laughs> and the fact also is that times change so much that what somebody did in the past has nothing and no bearing on what is happening right now. So when I was a younger executive or a younger person in the workplace and somebody would say, oh, you need to pay your dues because such and such did it and they did it this way. And I'm just like, yeah, but that was like 30 years ago. Why do I still got to do that now? And so even when I look at the younger executives on my team, I don't compare them to who I was 20 years ago. Life has changed. Times have changed. The world has changed. So I just hate that phrase. I think it's so stupid. (laughs) So going off of that, then what do you think people who are entering the workforce, Mm -hmm. what do you think is good advice for them? Not that pay your dues is ever good advice, but the idea behind it, that it's kind of like learning from those before you. Well, I think that they should really be focused on themselves, focused on their own growth, not the obligations or expectations set forth by anybody. So dangerous. Because what happens is that expectations shift so much that you'll constantly be in chase of somebody else's measure of your success. You'll never be satisfied because somebody else is going to keep moving that yardstick. And so why not set your own expectations and live up to them? And then if you decide to morph them or change them, go and do that. For myself, it's like, look, I set the expectation that I wanted to be the best marketer. I didn't necessarily say I wanted to be in the C-suite because in full transparency, I didn't think that was possible for me. I didn't see it. Look, I looked around and there was a whole bunch of white boys in those seats. Nobody looked like me, first of all. And even if they did slightly look like me, they didn't dress like me. They didn't wear lipstick like I did. They didn't have the nails that I do. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't, they weren't wearing sequins on a Tuesday. And that's what I wanted to do. And I feel that for people who are looking at 
the future of their career. It's like you should really be the one in charge of your own destiny. And I know that sounds also cliche, but it's like for real though, be in charge of your own destiny, set the path for yourself, decide what it is, the hurdles and the goals that you're going to set for yourself. Set that. Don't let somebody else tell you. I want to go to a listener question. This is from Elle who wants to know, you've really built your own personal brand along with building the marketing arms at the companies you've worked for. How has that been to do both? And has that ever been tense? Yes, it's tense all the time. (laughs) It's tense all the time because I found that leadership in many companies doesn't like individuals. They don't like people to have their own ideas. They want everybody to be focused on the work. I think it's possible to do both. And oh, by the way, the irony is that companies find real value in me being me. So when I'm hired at a company, they don't say, oh, we just want a marketer. They say they want both. So there is value in being you. There is value in building your own brand. And I have built my brand based off the work I do. Now, that is the magic, actually. Now, here's the thing. This might be a little controversial. Sometimes you need to take the credit for the work you do. I know that feels icky because people in corporate companies always want to be like, oh, we did this and we did that. Well, sometimes that group project wasn't a group project. It was supposed to be a group project, but guess who did the work? I did. So when we're in that meeting where we're reviewing the results, (laughs) oh, you better believe. I'm like, yes. So what I did in this moment to receive this result was X, Y, and Z thing. Oh, and then we did this other part of the thing. You've got to distinguish. And I know that it feels gross because people have told you all the time they should be humble. You shouldn't celebrate yourself. I know they've said that a million times, but you need to do it. Otherwise, you don't grow yourself. You don't grow your brand. And by the way, you don't celebrate yourself. So how's anybody supposed to know what your contributions are? How are they supposed to know what you're able to do? So what's the next thing you want to fill your cup? Mm. Any ideas? Well, right now, actually, that's it's like such a crazy question because I, last summer I was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I, it was so shocking to me because I literally was just like, wait, hold on. I'm not 65 years old. Like, why am I being inducted into the Hall of Fame? Like, I'm not done with my career. But then I looked around and I was like, oh, shoot, like I have done quite a bit of this. So maybe (laughs) the universe is telling me I should hang this up. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And the truth of the matter is that, like, look, I wish I could sit here and tell you I had a five-year plan. I don't. I don't know what's coming. So I am very, very invested in what I'm doing right now. I'm an author now, a published author. I'm enjoying this. I already know what I'm doing in marketing. So maybe it's time to try my hand at something new. Last question. Who's someone else we should have on the show? Ooh, who's someone else? I think you should have... Lovey Ajayi Jones. She's the author of a book called The Professional Troublemaker. I've heard of her. I've not met her, but yeah. that's, that's a good one. Will you connect us? Hell yeah, for sure. Okay. Yes, you should have her. She's dope. Okay. <laughs> Bose, thank you so much. Congratulations Aww. on everything. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. 